right out this door to my right, your left, we'll see them all slowly filing away. What do I have today? I love it. Which one's me? Is that one me? It's perfect. Which one's you? Oh, that's good. Love it. Thank you, sweet girl. Pictures for me. Awesome. Um, man, welcome. We're glad you're here. Happy Easter. Uh, what an exciting time. You know, it's always fun. Uh, we moved into this new space with the intention of being able to grow into the space, and so it's fun to have a full room and have everybody here. We've only been in here a few months, and we're, we're kind of learning to love it a little bit, and uh, it's really exciting. A lot of new space for our kids and space to worship all together, and so we, uh, we really are excited. And so it's a wonderful day to celebrate our first Easter in the space, mainly because we're not celebrating an event, right? We're celebrating the person. Oftentimes we put Easter in these categories as being a, a singular event that we gather and we do, and culturally we do all the things that go along with it, and so church is part of that experience. But really, when we celebrate Easter as a resurrection, we're celebrating the person of Jesus Christ. We're celebrating the individual that God raised from the dead to give us life, victory over death, life in Christ. And as I was thinking about this week, and I was thinking about all the events that have unfolded as we started with Palm Sunday last week because we're taking a little bit of break from our study of the book of Acts and we explored Palm Sunday and I was thinking about these events and I was thinking that most of us kind of take Holy Week and we reduce them down or reduce this week down to a series of four really important events, right? We have Palm Sunday, we've got the Last Supper that happened on Thursday where Jesus celebrates with his disciples, we've got the crucifixion on Friday, of course, Good Friday, and then we have Easter. And these events we know they're all really important, and we all know the outcome of them. We've ta- been taught them, or we've heard them, or we've read about them, and we, we know what they are. But if you really read Scripture, you really read it, you begin to understand that there is so much more behind these events than just the circumstance or situation. We explored this last week with Palm Sunday. There was so much more to Palm Sunday than Jesus riding out of Jericho and into Bethany and into Jerusalem, where people were laying down the palm branches, and they were chanting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, Come and save us. There was so much more to that. There was Jesus stopping on the side of the road, taking the two guys that were blind and and touching his fingers to their eyes, right, and restoring their sight. And we talked about that last week, the sort of intimate moment that Jesus has with these folks. Obviously, there's so much more to the Last Supper than just Jesus breaking bread with his disciples. There was a moment where he stood up and removed all of his outer clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and scrubbed the garbage and filth and dirt off the feet of the creation that he breathed life into, right? The deeply personal moments that took place. And then, of course, you have that walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed and abandoned by every single person in his life. And he begs his followers to pray with him. Two guys in particular, please pray with me. And they fall asleep. And Jesus falls before the Lord and he says, Father, if there is any other way than what is about to happen to me, please take this cup from me, right? But not my will, but your will be done. And he begins to sweat, even to the point of sweating blood. And that moment where the crowd arrives, and they're angry and they're furious, and he's betrayed by a kiss from one of his closest friends. And he's handed over, and he's beaten, and he's tortured, and he's tried. And then on Friday, of course, he's crucified. On a Roman tool of torturous mockery and death. A tool that was invented for two reasons. One, to humiliate people and deter them from ever doing wrong, right? And two, to slowly torture and kill someone. And Jesus dies there, hung between two thieves. Not an event, but the hearts that walked by hurling insults. 
The ground shakes as Jesus gives up his last breath. And the guards that are standing there say, surely this was the Son of God. And then, of course, we arrive on Easter Sunday, which we're all kind of been raised to believe is this sort of hand-clapping, jubilant, amazing. We put an orchestra up in church, and we have all kinds of great things going on, and egg hunts, and eagles flying around, or whatever, and all this stuff is happening, right? And it's celebrating, and it's exciting. But if you really look at Scripture, it was a crazy mix of emotions. There was a lot of heartbreak, and a lot of disappointment, and a lot of deep sadness on this day. It wasn't all excitement. We have the beauty of seeing things 2,000 years prior or past. But on that morning, there was a lot of confusion, and there was a lot of fear, and there was a lot of sadness. And so this morning, we're going to look at this picture of Easter and the complexity of its emotions and its relationships. And not so much as the single event in which God gives life to his son and frees us from death, which is incredible, but from the heartbeats that are behind it. And from the real things that I think you and I bring into this room, right? The real fears and the real doubts and the real insecurities and the real pain. Coupled with the truth that comes that there's a joy that outweighs all of that. So this morning we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 20. And we're going to explore the resurrection through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, right? And I'll tell you her story and we'll get into it in a moment. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip it open to John chapter 20 for me, and then we're going to pray together, and then we'll open it up and see what it says. So let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to gather here together. I'm grateful that you draw people together around these incredible moments. And then a lot of us are here because we're with family, or we're in from out of town, or, or we, we, you know, we come on Easter, and that's great. That's great. But the fact is, we are gathered here for the singular purpose, to worship you, that you have given us reason to live and reason to wake up in the morning. And God, you have, you have drawn our souls from darkness, literally. The sin of our life has been overcome through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And no matter how often we come to church or whatever, the truth is that's what brings us here this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that as we celebrate that truth, you would allow us to find ourselves in the middle of the story somewhere. Uh, maybe it's not the perfect picture of the perfect family with the perfect children, or maybe it's not the perfect picture of joy and happiness. Maybe there's brokenness in our life. Maybe there's hurt. Maybe there's a lot of questions or doubts. The amazing thing about this picture of the resurrection is that all of those emotions are in there. They're all in there. And so, Lord, help us find ourselves in the middle of a story, in a story that's ours. Take a moment in your own heart and, and just ask God to teach you something this morning. In a story that you've probably heard a hundred times, ask God just to speak to your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, behind you. We do this each week. We just ask you to be in the habit of praying for other people. To realize that this morning and any morning is not just about you, but pray for someone around you, beside you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know the name. God, we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning. We know that you are the revealer of truth. God, we ask you to teach us. We ask this in Jesus' risen and perfect name. Amen. So I'm going to paraphrase the first 10 verses, and then we're going to jump into uh, John chapter 20, verse 10. But here's kind of what's happening, and here's what we all remember from the story, right? Easter morning. 
Mary goes down to the tomb. Mary and several women. John records it as Mary Magdalene going down to the tomb to take care of the body of Jesus. Dying wasn't sort of a one-time thing. It was a caretaking process. They would carefully wrap the body. They would do it according to Jewish tradition and customs. They would go down days later. They would rewrap the body. It was a very intentional and intensive process. And so Mary was going down to the tomb to take care of the body of Jesus. And when she arrives, she finds the stone rolled away, right? That's the Easter story that we know. John tells us that when she got there... She was in an absolute panic, and she runs all the way back into town, finds the disciples, and she says, he's gone. The Lord is missing. And so Peter and John race down from the upper room or from the place they're staying to the tomb. They run and run and run, and John records it as he was a lot faster than Peter, and so he got there first, and and he gets to the tomb, but then Peter comes barreling by and pushes him out of the way, and, and they're all standing in there, and there's no Jesus. But what they see is right where Jesus' body should have been, all the linens, all the bedclothes that had been wrapped around him were all laying right there where his body should have been. And John tells us that they didn't know what to do with this. They weren't quite sure yet or understood yet what the resurrection meant or even if this is what happened. And so they look at each other, and then John 20 at the end in verse 9 basically says, and they just went home because they didn't know what to do. They were stuck. They were confused. There was no body there. And then John 20, 10 picks up with Mary. Okay, let's take a look at this in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John and Peter returned back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw the angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have yet to return to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to the Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that he had said and the things that he had said to her. So the disciples, who are John and Peter at this time, have returned. They they are confused and bewildered, and they have left. And Mary, we pick up in John 20.10, is standing there over the tomb. Now, a lot of our mental picture is this giant tomb in the cave in the side of the wall, but most likely this tomb was a, was a small, like, three-foot opening that was carved into rock, right? And she's standing over it, and she's just crying. I mean, there's probably no more vivid picture of real raw emotion and grief in all of Scripture, right? She believes in her heart that someone has come and stolen the body of Jesus, her Lord. Peter and John have returned, and she's standing over this tomb, and it says she's crying. Actually, it says that she is weeping. And those weeping tears, if you've ever had them, are that sort of chest-heaving, deep, kind of uncontrollable crying. And she is weeping, and her tears are falling right there on the dirt. And she looks inside the tomb, right, inside this place, and sitting there where Jesus' body should have been were two angelic figures, two angels, one at the head, and one at the feet. 
And they look at her and they say, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put his body. Almost paying no attention to the fact that there are angels sitting in the tomb. We don't even get the idea that she's even caught up to speed with what's going on. And she's just so emotional in the process, right? Hey, why are you crying? I've taken my Lord away. And then she hears this other voice coming from behind her. It says, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Turning towards this voice, thinking it's the gardener, which is not all that uncommon because Jesus in these resurrection appearances often keeps himself from being recognized. It happens with the guys on the road to Emmaus. He walks a long way with them, for example. They're kept from recognizing him. Not uncommon. She turns. Jesus keeps himself from being recognized from her, thinking he's the gardener. She says, sir, listen, no questions asked. Like if you've taken him, if you are the one that took his body, just tell me. I'm okay with it. I'm just going to go and get it. Right? Jesus looks at her and he says one word, Mary. And she turns and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which is the word teacher. But really, it was a word that was used to open a prayer when you're crying out to God. So you addressed God as Rabboni in, in the Jewish culture when you were crying out to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Rabboni. And she throws herself at him because Jesus has to literally say, don't hang on to me. Right? I've yet to return to the Father. She throws herself most likely at his feet crying out to him, and he stands her up and says, don't yet hang on to me, but go and tell the disciples, the brothers, right, that I'm returning to my father and their father, my God and their God, right? Go and tell them. And she does exactly what he says. She goes and tells, she busts in the room, and she says, I have seen the Lord. Now, I love this picture. I really do. I love this Easter story because I feel like it is where my heart is in a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of us have been taught that this Easter thing was all glorious and happy. Everything was perfect. And it's the way a lot of us have been taught our Christian lives should look, right? Glorious and happy, even when you don't know, even when there's doubts, even when there's hurt and struggle. You put on a smiley face and you just exist. You pretend it's all together. But if you really read the Easter story, there's not a bunch of people running around high-fiving each other because Jesus is alive. There's confusion, there's doubt. They wonder if this person that they followed for their whole life is now just a, a sham or gone, or as in Mary's case, that his body had been stolen. I mean, it is filled with real tears and real hurt and real life, right? Which is how I think most of us exist. But in church, we come together and we put on our faces and we make sure that everything looks fine, but in, we really scrape away that truth or that idea, the truth underneath all that, so we've got a lot of questions. I don't have this thing put together real well, and I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly what it is I do believe. So I really love this picture because I think it's, it's really powerful. But I want you to see a couple things in it, right? Because there are things that really kind of move my heart. And the first is this. That I want you to understand how real Mary's pain was. Now, I don't say that lightly, okay? I really not, I'm not saying that like, hey, Mary was hurting. Like, she was deeply deeply hurting, to that point of being sort of that excruciating pain. Her pain was so real that she's moved to this sort of lonely, right, the other guys have left, chest-heaving tears. Now imagine yourself in her scenario for a moment. 
Imagine you've lost someone that you love dearly. I mean really close. Father, mother, husband, wife, child. You've gone through the funeral. You've worked with the church and the pastor, and you've done that, and you've cried, and you've shed tears, and you've picked out all the things you can do. You've had the funeral. You've gone to the graveside. You've had the service. You've wept over this person who you loved so dearly. You go back two days later to spend time at the grave or to go visit the tombstone or whatever it is that you want to do. And you go back and that place had been dug up. That plot had been dug up and someone had taken the body. That's what she believed had happened. She believed that someone had come in and stolen the body of Jesus. That's the kind of emotion that Mary is living in. It's what she's dealing with. And that pain is extremely real. Now, the reason I say this is because I find it incredibly comforting. Now, I know that doesn't sound nice, but it's true. And you know why I find it so incredibly comforting? Because it gives us permission to be honest with God. Mary's picture gives us permission to be honest with God. And most of us are not honest with God because we are petrified in our Christian culture of words like doubt, of pain, of fear, of worry. Why? Because we think that somehow those feelings betray our true belief in God. And nobody else has them. And I'm the only one that's stuck with them. And I'm supposed to trust and be kind and be happy and put on a smiling face when everything is falling apart, when I really want to shout out, God, why did you allow my mom to die of cancer? What if none of this is true? Have you forgotten me? We have moments where our hearts want to scream those things as tears fall out. But we're petrified of saying them because our culture tells us that we can't. Our Christian culture tells us that we can't. But what we see in Mary is something very real. Because Jesus had been telling them this was going to happen. It wasn't like this was the first kind of sign. He had been telling them and giving them windows and actually just a day before, two days before, had plainly told them all and Mary was there because you got to understand Mary Magdalene was not new to the following Jesus scenario. There were a bunch of people that traveled around with Jesus and Mary was one of them. Her and three women are named in Luke 8 as women that had their lives transformed by Jesus and had followed him with the disciples. Her and a woman named Joanna who was the head of Herod's household and a woman named Susanna. And what we learn about Mary Magdalene is not the cultural picture that some of us have been taught that she was a lady of the night and all that. It's not true. There's no biblical evidence for that. What there is biblical evidence for is this, is that Jesus cast seven demons out of her life. And at that moment, she turned around and followed him. And Luke 8 tells us that she gave everything to support the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. So her, along with these other two women and probably multitudes of others, went around with the disciples and supported them and encouraged them and did ministry alongside Jesus. She's not new. Fourteen times she's mentioned in the New Testament as part of these crucifixion and resurrection picture. And yet, she comes across that tomb and her heart is shattered. And I really see that picture. You know, John and Peter leave and she is just weeping. And I find it really comforting because there are moments in my life where I just want to cry. I just want to look at God and go, I don't get this, man. I really, I don't understand. Why is it hard? Why is this not easier? Why do I sometimes feel like just maybe I'm going through a lot of motions? 
we have real doubts and real fears. Mary's pain was extremely real, and so is yours. You know what? That is okay. Because look at what Jesus does. Right in the middle of Mary's pain, he reveals himself. Right? What does he do? She's sobbing and heaving, and Jesus reveals himself. But here's what I want you to understand about his revelation. Notice when Jesus reveals himself. Mary runs to that tomb, or she gets to that tomb, and and right in that moment where she realizes the body of Jesus is gone, he doesn't show up right there when her heart hits the panic button and say, it's it's okay, it's good, calm down, I'm right here, it's all going to be fine. No, she freaks out, she runs all the way back into town, she gets John, she gets Peter, they come running down, Jesus is still gone, they're freaked out, they don't know what to do, they leave, she's left there alone, sobbing over the tomb, her tears falling in the dirt where she had laid the body of her Savior two days before, and there's still no word from Jesus. Who knows how long all that took? Hour? Hour and a half? Who knows how long she sat there sobbing and brokenhearted? Angels, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my, my Lord. And then Jesus himself, who she thinks is the gardener, stands over here and he says, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She just pleads, sir. Right in the middle of all that, Jesus just speaks into her pain. But he doesn't reveal himself. However long that time period goes by, he allows her heart to be broken. And then in his perfect, amazing, incredible timing, whatever that was, he looks at her, and she's now looked at him because she's turned to him, and he looks at her and he says, Mary. And at that personal moment, man, she just knew, and she threw herself at him. I mean, literally threw herself, where he's like, you can't hang on to me anymore. She's grabbing him. What I find so remarkable about this is that you and I want Jesus to step into our mess and fix it now. We talk about this a lot around here. We want Jesus to step in and say, fix this now. We want right in the moment our pain begins, we want Jesus to tell us it is all going to be okay. We want him to step in right when our heart hits a panic button and go, look, I'm right here. It's all good. But sometimes in God's perfect, incredible, beautiful, holy time, a timing, he lets our hearts break and he lets our tears fall. I can't explain it and I don't know why. But God's timing is perfect and it's amazing and it's brilliant. But it's not easy. And so Mary, in her moments, lives with a broken heart lives with questions, probably all kinds of doubts, and the God of the universe allows her to. Not because he doesn't care, but because in his beautiful moments, he's going to reveal himself as the one that rescued her. And he looks at her in a very personal way. He says, Mary. And she knew. She knew. And how much greater was that acknowledgement of his life coming through her tears than it would have been to have never experienced it. See, Jesus in his perfect moments reveals himself to us. We don't discover him. Mary was never going to figure this out. She was never going to discover God. We do not land on God. God reveals himself to us. It's a really important theological concept. God is never the end of our mental journey. He always reveals himself. We will never get there no matter searching, no matter spiritual wandering, no matter book reading, no matter whatever it is that you are looking for will ever lead you to God. But God reveals himself to us what he does. And it's always at his perfect timing. And it's in those moments where sometimes the tears are falling the hardest. 
where he seems to be the gardener, right? Where he seems to be nowhere to be found. But then God in his beautiful, incredible moments just says with one word, Mary. And he calls you by name. And I deeply believe God speaks those personal things into our life. So we've got this Mary who's broken and Jesus speaking into her life. So how does she respond to that? Well, she cries out Ramona, right? Which is this sort of crying out to God in prayer. It's not just like, oh, hey, teacher. It is like, as I approach God, I address him as a Ramona and I throw myself on him. Mary responds in worship. And make no mistake, this is worship. We've categorized worship as what we do for three songs before I teach. The truth is worship is a condition of our heart. It is how we set ourselves up before God. It is a recognition of holy, mighty, magnificent God compared to my treb, sinful, broken, disastrous life. When I realize the, the difference and the distance between those two, worship begins. Because I recognize I am nothing without God. And what am I doing? I call upon him and I throw myself at his feet. Worship actually is a condition of our hearts. It's how we live. And how does Mary respond? Well, she just responds in worship. And it is probably, honestly, one of my favorite pictures of worship in all of Scripture. Why? Because it's not scripted. There's no songs on a sheet, right? There's no order. There's no rehearsal. There's none of those things that we do to try and make a a lovely Easter service so that people will want to come back. It's just Mary in the middle of her tears, throwing herself at the feet of Jesus, crying out to him. Worship is best when it's unscripted. Worship is best when it's just you recognizing that God loves you in the middle of your disastrous choices. That God loves you in the middle of your deepest sin, in the middle of your darkest doubt, in the middle of a moment where you want to scream at the top of your lungs at him and yell at him, or in the middle of a moment where you say, I don't even know if you're real. When God reveals himself in the middle of that moment, believe that true picture of worship is incredible because it's not perfect. doesn't use the right words. doesn't use all the Christian lingo, right? doesn't use a song we heard on K-Love. It's just Jesus, right? So Jesus stands her up and tells her, right? This is how Jesus responds to her. I'll kind of wrap it up with this. He says, listen, go and tell. Go and tell the brothers everything I've just said to you, right? So what does she do? She runs and tells them and her phrase is this, I have seen the Lord. So you've got this amazing woman who has gone from heartbreak to proclamation. Zero to 60 in a matter of moments because of interaction with Jesus. But Jesus' command to her is this, go and tell. It's actually the command for all of us as Christ followers, right? To go and tell the world. Culturally, we've created churches, though, that are, we feel like the command is like, come and sit. Like, come and bring them here, sit here, let Treb tell you what I'm afraid to tell you, and then I'll ask you how it went and what you thought, and if you hate it, then I'll say, eh, it wasn't that great either, or whatever. And if you loved it, you're like, he's my favorite, you know, and then that's kind of deal. That's what our picture is. The truth is, it's not the picture of Scripture. This picture of Scripture is go and tell. In fact, just a few verses later, he's going and, and to appear in the upper room with these disciples that are gathered. He's going to walk through a locked door and tell them, just as my Father sent me, I'm sending all of you. The church exists to be sent. So who is it that you have talked about, or shared the gospel with, or proclaimed truth to? Right? Because if this is true, 
I mean, this resurrection thing that we're here gathered for is really true. Why would we not want to tell every single human that we ever come in contact with? Why would we not want them to know the key to eternal life, an abundant, true life? Because we're afraid of what they're going to think about us, about me. So I don't tell my mom, my sister, my brother, my whatever about the greatest thing that's ever happened to me and the promise that is for them because I'm nervous about what they're going to think. Single greatest truth ever. We hold it in the middle of our hands and we guard it because we're worried about what the world thinks. If this is really true, we not crawl on our hands and knees to just let one other person know how life-changing this is. See, Jesus didn't need Mary to go and tell the disciples. In fact, he's going to walk through a locked door and tell them himself. But he wants to use her because evangelism and telling the world is not about God needing us, but it's about us knowing him more. And so guess who gets to be the one that tells the world first about the resurrected Jesus? A formerly delivered demon-possessed woman who was a white-hot mess. And she becomes the proclamation tool, the gospel to the world. Look, you're broken. I'm broken. Shattered instruments. That God tells us, calls us to go and proclaim this truth to the world. This is who we are. It's who we're called to be. Raw, broken, hurting, painful, doubting, questioning people who are used by a holy, magnificent, remarkable, incredible God to share the single greatest truth in all of human history, not because he needs us, but because he loves us that much. So Easter is not so much about us gathering together saying, hey, isn't it great? Let's high five each other because God is awesome. But instead it's about saying, God, I've got a lot of questions for you and my heart really hurts, but I know in the middle of that, that you are still present somewhere. And that you still love me and that you want to use me not only to mend my broken heart but to tell the world that you are the healer of all things. And that becomes the picture of the church. I don't know why you're here this morning. I mean, maybe somebody brought you. Maybe you came with a loved one. Maybe you're here because it's Easter and you need to be here or you should be. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Today and every day from this point on, we have the opportunity to stand before the God of the universe. The God that did all this and proclaim our honest and raw and broken selves to a God that wants to reveal himself in the most remarkable way. If you have never given your life to Christ, never in your whole kind of existence said, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to surrender my heart to you. I invite you to come down as Don's playing. Just visit with me. And let's make today the first day that this whole thing begins again. Because we have the opportunity to stand before a risen God with all of our questions and all of our sort of skinned knees and bruised, battered hearts all out there and have a God speak our name, right, Mary, and rescue and redeem and restore. Easter, it's about life, restoration, renewal, new beginnings. One thing it's not about is it's not about perfection. Right? It's not about perfection. It's about broken people being rescued by a redeeming, holy God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the moments that Easter is. Not because of what we've created. Culture. Not because of what we've decided to do as churches to try and draw people or 
whatever, just for the pure fact, God, that there are people like Mary that are a lot like me, that have a lot of questions and a lot of doubts and a lot of fears and a lot of tears, a lot of anxiety and a lot of misunderstanding. And then there's you and all of your perfect holiness present, always present, yet sometimes allowing us to just not because you don't care, but because you love us so much that at the right time you want to speak our name in the most intimate and personal way. You want to say, Mary. And in that moment, God, where we see you and experience you and we throw ourselves at your feet in that raw, pure, beautiful moment of worship, of imperfect, implanned, non kind of organized worship, that moment where I just realized that you are holy God and I am sinful, yet you still love me. In that moment, God, that's where life is found. And Easter, I deeply believe, is about that moment. It's about realizing that no one has stolen your body, but that you have conquered death to give us life. And without you, I am hopeless. 100% hopeless. And in that moment, God, we truly find worship. And you tell us to tell the world, to go and tell the world. And I love Mary's phrase, I have seen the Lord. She didn't have a lot of explanation, no theological treaty on this or that or thoughts about whatever, just I've seen Jesus. What if that became the cry of a heart as a church? Like, look, we don't know the answers to everything, right? I can't give you the top 16 reasons why there's validation that God did this. I can just tell you that I've seen Jesus in my life.